afternoon, and today we have with us Assemblymember Tim Grayson for today's podcast. Assemblymember Tim Grayson represents the 14th Assembly District encompassing portions of Contra Costa and Solano counties. He has been a strong voice on the housing problems facing California and is one of the leaders of the Assembly Housing Working Group, which recently held a series of regional roundtables across the state to examine California's housing problems. Assemblymember Grayson serves as chair of the Banking and Finance Committee and is also a member of the Business and Professions Committee, Insurance Committee, and Revenue and Taxation Committee. Very busy. Uh, Prior to being elected to the State Assembly, he served as the mayor of the city of Concord in the East Bay. And one little known fact that may be of interest to our listeners is he has also maintained a license as a general building contractor since 1997. Welcome, Assemblymember Grayson. It is my pleasure to be with you. As a Bay Area resident, you are all too familiar with our state's housing crisis and the need to create more opportunities for home ownership. The state budget has been focused, it seems, mainly on directing new construction funding toward rental housing. However, it has left there for kind of a vacuum of investment in the production and preservation of needed home ownership housing for working Californians. Can you share your thoughts on how the state could prioritize more budget dollars toward home ownership housing in California? You know, great question. And that was one of, uh, that was an impetus to uh, what charged uh, some assembly members uh, to really move forward with what we call the assembly housing working group. And uh, from my perspective, as a representative from Contra Costa County, one of the amazing facts that I was facing uh, was that just in one single year last year, housing costs raised 25%, 25%. It was already unaffordable. But to have it experience that type of expenditure growth is is uh, unsustainable. And so there were things that uh, really, uh, really caused concern for me in the fact that I was hearing a lot of conversation about rental housing and, and much needed rental housing, especially in the context of homelessness and also uh, entry from street into some type of housing, whether it be transitional or permanent uh, affordable housing. And so I realized, and I think this is another truly, truly motivating factor for me, was that I have, I I call them kids. I have two children, two kids. Uh, They're adults, but they're still my kids. Mm -hmm. And the motivating factor for me was not a headline, was not a position, was not uh, uh, anything other than this. I did not want to have to get on an airplane to go visit my grandkids because I could not, because my children could not afford to live where I raised them. And so having said that and having seen through evidence the increase in the cost of housing, I realized we have got to step up and do something more than just rhetoric from the legislature. We have to have the support of the budget And we have to have the political will of the legislators themselves to pass policy that does more than just put a roof over someone's head and a front door in front of them. But we have got to position people for ownership, home ownership, which is what strengthens the economy and makes our community stronger. Thank you, Assemblymember. Do you think the $45 billion surplus or possibly even more, it looks like, could provide more opportunities to help enable home ownership? Well, of course. I mean... uh, I, I believe that is to be true, that that uh, it is going to take money, it is going to take funding to actually spur and make things happen. However, I will tell you, there is tremendous, there is tremendous will out there in the market. 
for California to build. And that was another reason for doing this housing working group tour was so that we could go out there and not prescribe or tell people what they needed to do, but to actually listen and garner information from a regional basis as to the obstacles and the challenges that they were facing. And by that, being able to come back to Sacramento and do more than just take a handful of money and throw it at the problem, but to actually come up with policy to match the funding to actually get something done and for development to be opened up and for production to actually happen in California. Thank you, Assemblymember. Um, CAR, the California Association of Realtors, is part of a coalition including Habitat for Humanity that is supporting an additional $200 million in, in the 2022-2023 uh, budget for, to support new construction within the Cal Home program. What do you think of the Cal Home program? And do you think more investment into this uh, program is wor a worthwhile investment? The Cal Home program and Cal uh, or HFA, uh, I, I think it's a tremendous program. And I, I think promoting home ownership is so very, very important. But again, when dealing with state agencies, we face the struggle of, of bureaucracy. We, we face the struggle of being able to put funding out there, but then being able to position for that funding to actually get where it needs to go to make something happen. That's why I authored AB 1135. The whole purpose behind that was to address the agencies that oversee and distribute the funding for ta or, or distribute uh, funding for tax credits for affordable housing. We have four different agencies, which means we have four different application process, four different review process. And in some cases, those application and guidelines for those applications conflict with one another. And in the times that we're in, where you want to be able to build affordable housing, you have to layer your funding. By layering funding means you're getting funding from multiple different sources that have guidelines that actually conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. AB 1135 would have brought that under one single roof to be able to create one single application with one review process and to streamline it so that we could actually get the money to where it's going. And the reason for that was the state auditor found that the, the state had mishandled up to $2.7 billion that could have been in the hands of developers to build housing in California. Okay. Um, what about, what do you feel, what do you think about down payment assistance programs or more, more money for that type of assistance? Well, I think that's going to be the, uh, uh, in my experience and what I heard on the tour was that there are folks out there right now that are stuck in the rental market because they cannot get into ownership singly, one reason, and that is the down payment. They obviously have proven they can afford the monthly cost of housing, but what they cannot do is come up with the extraordinary amount required to enter into home ownership. So down payment assistance to me is so vitally important as it is to have affordable housing. I have this little mantra that I use, we need to discuss and we need to support affordable housing, but we also need to have a conversation around housing that's affordable. And what I mean by that is there is this missing middle that has gone for so long unaddressed in California. And it is through home ownership in which we build that wealth, uh, that generational wealth uh, for families to find that security. And the, literally, in many cases, the only thing standing between uh, a family owning a home 
and where they're at in the rental market is being able to come up with down payment. So down payment assistance, I think, is vital to us getting out of the housing crisis. You know, there's it seems like there's often a degree of either resistance or a lack of desire to push further on things like um, down payment assistance or programs that assist home ownership specifically, um, even if it's targeted at affordable home ownership opportunities. Why do you think that is and what could overcome something like that? Well, I think there is a stigma that we uh, fight a mindset that is that has been put out there, a narrative that is accepted as true that necessarily isn't always the case, definitely not law or principle. And that is we have developers out there that are just making money hand over fist and and they're in their private jets and their mansions and all this is happening when really, truly that is not the case. And, and I know that exists and there's this uh, you know, we need to make, we need to bring California back to California. And, and what I mean by that is California neighborhoods belong to families and not wall street corporations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, which is why I'm running a bill, hopefully with the, with the, uh, huge support of, of, uh, the realtors, uh, this year. And, uh, that is to address that very issue. Uh, but back to what you had brought up. And that is the fact that uh, we need to understand the process of development and what it takes to develop and the extraordinary cost. We we hear stories about transitioning a hotel to affordable uh, units and it costing $500,000 a door. And we stand at that door and look into that room and say, how can that possibly be? Well, it is because we have impact fees that we have to incur. There are development fees that come from infrastructure that used to be covered from redevelopment agencies that are now piled on the cost or piled onto each unit. And really to redo the unit and get it ready for uh, for affordable housing isn't truly costing 500,000. But when you add on impact fees and when you add on infrastructure fees and everything else that goes with entitlement process, now you start uh, increasing the cost of that unit exponentially. Uh, exponentially. So it's a uh, housing is a complex issue, and it's something that that uh, people would rather accept status quo rather than buck against it. Actually, learn what the truth is, and not just go with an uh, off the street narrative. Assembly member, you touched on one of the key issues, with the, which is the cost. I mean. Everybody was familiar with the, I think in Los Angeles, the auditor found certain uh, programs for the homeless, certain properties were over a half a million dollars per unit. Um, you've addressed some of those issues about what those costs are. What do you think could be done more legislatively to help address that problem? So I have sat on a city council. I know what it's like as a council member, as a vice mayor, as a mayor, having stood on the backside of a planning desk and understanding the dire need and the importance of impact fees that help pave the streets, that help uh, that help pour the sidewalks, and that provide the much-needed infrastructure, uh, such as sewer and water and electricity. So I understand how vital those fees are. I also understand, uh, having been a, a and still am a general contractor, standing on the other side of that counter. And, and having those fees be piled on to the point that it actually costs more for the fees than the actual ADU, the accessory dwelling unit. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think there is a really great opportunity here where the state could partner with local municipalities. Hmm. And if the local municipality would entitle property and would allow development to come in that would address affordable housing needs, that would address the missing middle market, then there's, there could be a relationship, a partnership there where fees are actually backfilled by by the money that the governor has already earmarked in the in the budget for housing. And so that we actually direct where that money's going rather than just throwing it into the air and letting it land where it may, where the winds blow it and letting certain regions benefit when all boats should be able to rise in the state of California. So I think I think providing backfill for impact fees, I think also providing a way for infrastructure cost again to uh, to be uh, covered or find ways for municipalities to uh, uh, obtain funding for infrastructure costs would be huge in in housing cost. Thank you. I just want to go back to um what you stated about some of the resistance to funding for things like down payment assistance programs or Cal Homes is maybe a perception that that money isn't necessarily going to reach the intended recipients, but might be taken by developers or others. Why do you, and you mentioned that that's some of the resistance. In general, though, budgetary allocations don't seem to go toward home ownership programs also in general as much, because many of the concerns that you just raised could also apply to other types of development. Why do you think there isn't just more of a push for home ownership, given, just as you stated, it is one of the best ways for working Californians to get a foothold? There actually is a cause and effect here. And what I mean by that is that in many cases, historically, we have been able to fund multifamily housing, which is mostly in the in the arena of rental. And so by funding that, we were getting people into uh, a living space. And then from there would depend on their ability to then gradually move into first-time home ownership. Well, the only way that was to open up for those renters to become first-time home homeowners is for those that were first-time homeowners to be able to upgrade into that next level of housing, mm-hmm. which is the missing middle. Right. Well, because of the costs that have uh, that have piled on here in California and and uh, the inability for people to afford, in other words, it's become so unaffordable to upgrade, those folks who once would have upgraded after about 10, 15 years as in their first home, those homes aren't, uh, aren't being vacated because people can't afford to upgrade. Mm-hmm. They're literally staying in the home that they bought for the very first time for a much longer period. So there's no upward mobility. If we were create, to create production and housing, and made it affordable for uh, for all types, for folks to be able to graduate from their first home into the next stage home for their life, then we would open up that door for first-time home buyers and create upward mobility. So yes, absolutely. I, I'm right in line with where you're going with that. Thank you. As, as I mentioned, you are one of the leaders of the Assembly Housing Working Group. You went across the state. Um, where you saw various communities and the various uh, problems that they had in the in the different communities, were there any ideas or policies considered about home ownership in particular, and perhaps how to increase that? Yes, uh, uh, the, you know, like I said prior, we we went on this housing working group uh, not to prescribe and tell people what to do in their in their uh, communities as far as building, but to actually listen, and uh, we went from 
Chico all the way to San Diego, over 22 nights on the road, listening to folks from different regions and what worked in San Francisco doesn't work in Fresno and what we do in Fresno wouldn't necessarily work in San Diego and LA. It's its own world. It, what mm-hmm. works on one side doesn't work on the other side. But there were some uh, there were some themes. And number one across the board when it came to home ownership was uh, the inability to come up with down payment. The other uh, that was coming up was just no, no supply. And we know right. from Econ 101, it's, it's uh, supply and demand. And when, when the supply is not there and the demand is really high, costs go through the roof. And so the, uh, the unaffordability of housing uh, was, was beyond just a down payment issue. It was delving into the fact that there, there's no supply. And, and we have got to get to a place where we open up the doors to housing production in California. And that was a strong, strong theme. Yeah. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Our association is also a strong believer that, as you mentioned, basic economics, if you had more supply, uh, we could do something about these uh, about these costs. But as we saw with SB9, supply measures are extremely controversial. Um, why do you think it's so controversial and so difficult? Well, uh, people, uh, people are very uncomfortable with change, but they actually demand it. We want change, but I don't want to experience change. Mm -hmm. And so change is very difficult. And we all bought homes at a certain time when there was this beautiful pasture out in front of you and, and you liked the view that you had of, of whatever it was. But, uh, if you go back and look, there was a house there before that house that had a beautiful view. And then the house you bought was built and got in the way. So some of that is because of nimbyism, but I think uh, other parts of it is because uh, there needs to be there 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 needs to be a um, an environment or an atmosphere of trust between the people and their government, and the only way that happens is through engagement. And so when you're moving in a huge development into this small space or or where it's it's broaching, it's, it's going outward into what would some would consider a sprawl. Uh, very little times do people feel they had the adequate opportunity to engage. And so I, I, I think that it would be helpful uh, in many cases on a local side uh, that uh, things become more communal in the sense that uh, we address the issues that are very, very important to communities, such as urban sprawl lines. We had, and we look more toward infill or we look more toward upzoning properties that already have had development on them that uh, we could do a whole lot more with, especially in transit-oriented development areas. And so uh, when people start seeing government being really efficient, making wise decisions, they're more apt to follow uh, the direction the government wants to go or, or planning departments or d- uh, developers in themselves. Uh, Thank you. Um, The pandemic is likely to create less demand for commercial property space, just due to a lot of the changes that seem to have occurred with respect to uh, working from home, more remote work. Um, What do you think about the concept of adaptive reuse and what could the legislature do to encourage that? This was what was so phenomenal about the housing working group. 
uh, tour is that we were able to go to different places and do more than just sit around a table and hold a round table discussion. In every single stop, we actually took tours. And I will tell you, my uh, my perception of adaptive reuse was, was really impacted when we went to Fresno and we literally walked through a building that was a hotel and that they were converting it into uh, units, uh, multiple different types of units from affordable to uh, from transitional to affordable units to market rate. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely spectacular to see an old building come back to life again. And it didn't Im- it didn't impact the community as far as taking away uh, different, uh, you know, sprawling out mm-hmm. anymore. It was actually really great reuse of a building that was very close to transit that was close to downtown, that was very uh, uniform to walkability. And uh, so uh, I am, uh, I have become uh, more of a fan of adaptive reuse and uh, what we can, and the potential we can garner from, uh, from infill. Now you mentioned commercial and, and I had prior said about being a local official where housing is costly to a municipality. Mm-hmm. It's the commercial business that actually helps fund the services that are needed by a housing development. And so we have, we have, we must continue to to practice that where we can to be able to build housing that includes space mm-hmm. for commercial, which is why, uh, especially uh, in infill, to be able to do mixed-use development where there's commercial mixed in and in most cases, usually on the ground floor with living units on the top, uh, has made the difference and has had made it's it's enabled the developer to actually pencil out a development, whereas it never would have any other way. What do you think the legislature could do to encourage adaptive reuse and the types of um, modifications that you think might help that process? I think encouraging and incentivizing local municipalities to go back and look at their zoning and help them uh, and provide some funding to local municipalities that are willing to go and uh, and take another look at certain properties that are uh, that are zoned exclusive for commercial and allow there to be a rezone for mixed use Mm -hmm. and then incentivize that kind of development uh, because most certainly in every case, there's going to have to be uh, uh, some funding for uh, infrastructure. And so to be able to provide that kind of funding or some type of a funding mechanism uh, to, to allow mixed use through rezoning would be tremendous tool for local municipalities. Prior to my moving to Sacramento, I lived in Pasadena, California, and I don't know if this mandate is still there, but almost all the new condominium projects had that commercial on the first level and then condominiums or apartments above. So that was a kind of a staple of that, of that city, at least. Um, and it worked fine. It was it was it was pretty good. You had visionary planners. <laughs> you had visionary uh, leaders in the city to be able to make that happen. And yeah. I, I think that is. That is uh, what makes a community strong and walkable and environmentally mm-hmm. friendly. And uh, to incorporate ownership into that kind of a setting is just as important. We also have a problem in many regions of the state with insurance right now, in particular, those areas where there are fire issues. I believe you have some districts, uh, areas like that in your district. What do you think can be done with this very, very complicated problem? <laughs> 
Well, what, what's your answer? Can you give us an answer today as Family Member Grayson? I have yet to pigeonhole that issue <laughs> into a single answer. There are so many variables, and I, I, I think the first thing is is bringing people to the table, uh, all parties, all stakeholders, from insurance carriers to uh, to the fire experts and those that fight the fires, to the actual municipalities that have to struggle with uh, the development uh, that is much needed, but at the same time, being able to keep uh, public safety as top priority. And so bringing folks to the table and and learning what can be done. Again, and I think that goes back to making sure that we revisit some of the building standards that we have. And instead of a one-size-fits-all, we actually develop uh, adaptive policies for high risk wildfire areas, uh, you're you're going to have a different set of of guidelines hmm. for building. Uh, it doesn't mean we no longer build or no longer have ownership or uh, opportunities to live in those beautiful areas. What it means is we learn. We learn from what we've been through, and we take those lessons and turn them into smart policies, and and adapt to the environment that we uh, we now live in and uh, make sure that public safety and, and uh, the safety of those living in those areas are top priority and provide a way and the state very well, just like we have in other, uh, in other situations with insurance, very well may have to come up with a product uh, that subsidizes the market product that is out there. That, that is interesting. That's, that's an interesting idea. Um, as you mentioned, you are going to be carrying a bill to address the issue of large corporate ownership of single-family homes in California. Um, could you talk a little more about that? Yes, and I want to restate. Uh, I, I just want to restate that California neighbor neighborhoods should belong to California families and not Wall Street corporations. And there, I, I know there was a time and there was a place for which. Uh, banks and corporations were able to work together to lift certain neighborhoods out of uh, out of what we considered uh, blight, and those policies at that moment and at that time seemed appropriate and worked in some cases. But we have now learned that what we thought that program would deliver has not quite delivered what we believed we would have today. We thought it would end up in ownership again. And what we have found that many of those units ended up in someone's portfolio, some corporation's portfolio, and never did return back to market as an opportunity to own a home, but only as a place to rent. And extra, and uh, as you well know, the rents are extraordinary. Just the other day in one of the communities in my district, a single family home renting for over 5,500 a month uh, is not sustainable. And maybe the person can afford that payment per month, but at the expense of never being able to save to be able to buy a home. Right. And as you mentioned, it has been an issue of concern to us. And I think similar to what you just um mentioned, we also thought at first, okay, it's stabilizing the market, after, yeah. especially after the foreclosure crisis. But all those equity gains, which could have gone to homeowners, to individuals, which would have, as you mentioned, kind of a housing ladder, which would have allowed people to move up, have now gone instead to Wall Street corporations rather than to individual homeowners. Um, 
what sort of got you interested in this as a as as an issue? Well, I uh, again going back to the lack of opportunity for so many people, especially of our younger generation, that is looking outward outside of California and saying, "I have no opportunity where I've been raised." And literally, the only way for me to develop any kind of generational wealth is is uh, is gone here in California. Literally, that California dream no longer exists. It's it's more in the realm of a fantasy. And the only way for them to dream and bring that dream to reality is to move across state line. To me, is 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 not acceptable. Is not tolerable. And we have the means to change that here in this state. Uh, we we can change it through increasing production. That should be first and foremost on our list of priorities. It should be in coming up with the right policies that incentivize housing, whether it's directly through the developer or whether it's through incentivizing the uh, the entitlement and the permit process in municipalities. But then it's also making sure that we have that ladder that exists for people who have already entered into the homeownership market that can now climb that ladder and afford that ascension while allowing others create that vacuum to bring people out of the rental market into a home ownership market. It all works together from transitional housing to affordable housing to first-time home buyership to that middle, that missing middle and uh, that really hardworking family that wants to upgrade and create that uh, that next level of, of life for them. So it, it all goes hand in hand and it's intertwined and that fiber is what makes California so beautiful and so strong. Assembly member, as we mentioned, you are from the Bay Area, which is one of the most expensive regions <laughs> in the country, perhaps the world. Um, the interior of California is, is much more affordable comparatively. I, I found that myself moving from Los Angeles to Sacramento. What do you think about the possibility of the state, for example, encouraging or doing things to encourage remote work to allow people to perhaps to live in those more affordable areas? I I know there's a place. I, I absolutely support the fact that know there's a place for remote work. I also know that we're people. And I am so happy to be able to have the opportunity to be seen rather than just viewed. And so <laughs> having said that, knowing that in some cases I'm being viewed right now, uh, they say, and I can stand to be fact-checked here, but they say that all, uh, all communication, that 70% of all communication is nonverbal. So as much as I appreciate the remote part of it, uh, I also understand the importance and significance of one-on-one -on -one or personable uh, engagement. And uh, I know there's a place for everything. And I think there should be that option that's available. But I also know uh, the difficulty coming from the Bay Area where someone literally has to drive two hours one way to get to work. So I promote, along with the ability to be able to be remote, what I would also like to promote is what I have promoted from day one on the City Council of Concord when I served as a local elected. And we have the largest development opportunity in all of the Bay Area in the Concord Naval Weapons Station. And that was to not only turn that into a housing station for uh, three cities workforce 
in the Bay Area, but to actually move work out to where the people are and to be able to create a place where a person can work, live, and play all in the same community. And for me, that's what's important is taking and uh, in Concord Naval Weapons Station case, turning it into a job hub, a center where people can go work and uh, buy their home in that same spot and uh, play in the park. Assemblymember Grayson, I want to thank you for your time. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? I just really appreciate the good work and the advocacy that comes from the California Association of Realtors and uh, and all that you do. I, I know so many of your members are literally on the front lines, rank and file, and they are working so hard to help dreams come true for so many families that do believe in California, that don't want to leave this state, but desire to have something of their own that they can call their own. And every time that you are able to deliver that home and those keys into the hands of someone and they become that first uh, first time home buyer or they've upgraded to that next level and the joy that you bring to families, I just want to thank you because that's what keeps California strong. That's what keeps it vibrant. And that's what keeps us the best state in the nation to live. Thank you, Assemblymember Grayson. And we look forward to working with you uh, on the bill to uh, uh, address the problems of corporate ownership. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Disclaimer. The purpose of this podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors, CAR, is to provide general and educational information and opinions from a wide range of perspectives regarding politics, voting, elections, legislative issues, and more. The opinions, beliefs, and views expressed by guests or participants of this podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, or views of CAR, its affiliates, their respective directors, officers, or employees. Reference to any individual or entity does not constitute an endorsement, recommendation, or any other position or opinion regarding that entity or individual by CAR. This podcast does not constitute professional advice or services of any kind. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.